Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. It's uh, Mike and uh, George. Nice, I like that. <laughs> I like your time. Your timing is impeccable. Thank you. Um, we are a sponsor podcast. I want to let you guys know. I want to remind you because I was going through our feedback. You know how people do reviews. If you haven't left a review for the podcast, please go in and leave a good review. If you're going to leave a bad review, just don't do anything. Yeah, we're just not going to pay attention to that. Yeah, well, it's funny. We got a bad review, and I read it. <laughs> and the guy said, um, this podcast is like a marketing ad. And uh, who does who does their ad? Who does ads and forces ads down people's throats? And I'm like, what? Uh, every podcast? Well, my whole thing is, like, th- there's a... There's a sponsored podcast that provides information and content for free. By by nature of how we do this, you can just fast forward the That's the, all. the the features. The the companies that we work with want to give back to you through us, and that's how what pays for this podcast to be sponsored. That's how it works. It's like the incentive is everything that we fit into our ad space are companies that we work with that has everything to do with Phil Craft Survival. Yes. And so it's just us offering that and by proxy allowing us to be able to finance this podcast with sure mics that we just bought, for example. Oh yeah, these are with great With this mics. new table that we just bought for the podcast yep. and making it better. But again, it's it's weird. podcast is a weird thing, man, because people ex- there's almost like an expectation, like, why aren't you giving me a, a podcast? Like, right? Ooh. Yeah. Where's my next episode? Where's my next episode? Um, imagine if you made a subscription-based podcast thing. It'd probably never work. No, because people won't pay. Yeah. Remember they're, they try to make Facebook, they're, the whole rumors, oh, they're going to make pay, oh Facebook, they're going to make you pay for it. Everyone lost their mind. Like, I'm not having Facebook But they anymore. would. They, they like, would pay. Calm down. You know you would. <laughs> <laughs> there's 900,000 podcasts on iTunes Damn. and in the system, and- in government and organizations, we are one of the subcategories in government um, under iTunes, and we are ranked top three, top top at least top five every single time. Every we single a podcast, yeah, which is great because that's amazing. There's there's podcasts that are kind of in the tactical survival realm that invest hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh yeah, we've invested ten dollars. Yeah, <laughs> maybe eleven with tax. <laughs> uh, guys, I want to let you guys know this podcast is sponsored by Killcliff.com. Killcliff. Look, man, this CBD drink—it's amazing. Dude, I, it's a game changer. I've—I drink at least one or two a day, which probably you know. Are we allowed to drink more than two? I don't today? know. Is there a limit? Oh, there's a limit, but yeah. it 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 works. I Cannabinoid mean, like CBD has all these additional health benefits that the FDA won't won't let you advertise because there hasn't been a lot of clinical studies. But just knowing myself and knowing how I operate. Being, the fact that cannabinoids are inside your body, um, and then you can get CBD, which kind of elevates the status of those cannabinoids in your body, that allows a, the alleviation of pain, for mm-hmm. example. And guess well, what? It's it's natural. It's all natural. It's not this pharmaceutical lab-made pill or whatever it is yeah. that you're putting in your body. So Yeah, I'm a big fan of Kill Cliff. That CBD drink is on point. It's amazing. Uh, you, uh, you guys could use Survival10 to save 10% at killcliff.com. And make sure you guys support companies that support nonprofits. These guys support the Navy SEAL Foundation, even though I was never a SEAL. I played one in a movie once. I watched them on TV. You watched them on TV. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of the Navy SEAL Foundation because they help veterans, uh, active duty SEALs, and their families um, in, in situations like Extortion 17 when we lost the entire yeah. troop of special operators. Um, yeah, man. P- 
please support KillCliff.com. Remember, KillCliff Challenge. Don't, just, no, you just can't make if you, that if you If you got a question, just DM me. Oh, God. Okay, so <laughs> also this podcast is sponsor, sponsored by Bravo Company Manufacturing, BCM. We've been working with BCM since the beginning. Ironically, we are actually filming a BCM <laughs> video right now. And I'm in it. You're in it. Yeah. Um, the idea is we're training George, like our training courses, mentoring him, uh, working on planning, preparation, and then the execution of the the specific mission in this case. Um, and it kind of highlights our training apparatus, but also highlights kind of the capabilities that we have internally to Philcraft Survival. Oh, yeah. uh, BCM is a big partner of ours, but they're eleven five upper. I'll tell God. you what, it's nice. I don't believe I, I don't have one of those. Mm-mm. I have 10.5 I have a, and a 14. Ten, yeah, 10 it's five. like a 10.3 or is it 10.5? They call it a 10.5. Yeah. It's actually 10.3, I think. But 11.5. I want nothing but 11.5s. After that SOCOM use of sock report that Kevin sent me, I'm getting 11.5s. Anyways, BCM, one of the best AR-15 uh, platforms on the planet. Uh, in conjunction uh, with that, we are also sponsored by Triarch Systems. And the only two carbines that we recommend are not just because we get sponsored, because we repped these companies before yep. we got uh, sponsored. And we use their equipment on the ranges, on our training courses. Flawless. Flawless. I've never had a jam. Raul's never had a jam. I know you've probably had that. A thousand BCM for like three or four years now. BCM and Triarch, both of those guns, I haven't had one malfunction. Nope. Uh, TriarchSystems.com also uh, sells uh, custom pistols, carbines, and rifles. Uh, one of my favorite ones is the Tri-11. I got that new Tri-11. It is so nice. It's an investment, but man, if you're willing yeah. to make that investment, it's the last pistol that you'll buy for, yep. for the range um, and for self-defense. That gun, that Tri-11, can be used. It's a double-stack 9 mil flat trigger um, based off an STI model, but it's the Tri version of this. It's an amazing build, man. I've seen in their factory how they build these things to spec, and it's like building a fine Rolex watch. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Use Philcraft at TriarchSystems.com to save 10 or 5% uh, on checkout of any build. 5% is a big deal yes, it is. in a build. Uh, also, this podcast is sponsored by Casey Lights. Casey Highlights, actually. CaseyHighlights.com. Uh, they're right, I mean, they're really right up the road from us. They're about, a, what, an hour and a half Where's away? That? Was that Williams? Williams. Arizona, yeah, Williams. Arizona. Family-owned business, fifty years going today. Well, this year is their fiftieth uh, anniversary. Uh, they have all kind of lights from your LEDs, your uh, what are they called? Jeez, I'm like going blank. Do you know anything about lights? You talking about trying to talk about lights? I, I mean, it's just there's, there's it's just an Did iconic you say your high beams and your low beams. Yeah, your high beams and low beams. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Casey Highlights is a uh, a cool company. I, I remember Casey Highlights when it was highlighted in Back to the Future. Yeah, I just remember seeing that you know that yellow the yellow circle. I still ha- the, I have them next yeah, door. It's it's if you don't know who Casey Highlights is, Google them. Oh my God. Casey uh, Highlights was the other people that were involved in the AT Overland thing. That's right. Oh my gosh, dude! We, I just made Our an brains. A, I, I just made an advertisement for Casey Highlights. If you're not tracking this, Casey Highlights, along with AT Overland, Max Tracks, a whole bunch of companies will be at our Go Rigs and Coffee, which is at AT Overland's location here in Prescott. The uh, I actually just made the brochure and, and left out Casey Highlights. God. Dang it. Sorry, Casey Highlights. Sorry about that. Um, but now you're included because we just remembered that. Um, Casey Highlights will be sending somebody out to that, but we'll have raffles March 14th, uh, Go Rigs and Coffee here in Prescott. You guys can go to philcraftsurvival.com to see that. Make sure you check out Casey Highlights. Um, I'm going to have my truck build 
which is my big Dodge Ram diesel go rig, will be on location at Overland Expo um, in mid-May at Flagstaff, Arizona, at the Overland Expo West. It will be in KC Highlights booth, and I'm kind of looking forward to that because I want to see that work out. And we have a coupon code. Yes, we do. The coupon code is Fieldcraft, one word, Fieldcraft, for 10% off your entire order. At KCHighlights.com. Hey, I got the chance to catch up with uh, Mario Donovan, uh, AT Overland. Mario Donovan from AT Overland is like an OG. He's with the Scott Brady's. Um, even even our friend Matt, we call Max Tracks Matt. These guys were the original originators of the Overland movement per se in North America or in the United States because it was like a South African thing, right? It was a, a, a Australia thing, and they started importing the first yep. pieces of equipment which made it what it is today. I mean, in REI, you can get a rooftop tent. Who would have thunk it? Because uh, a decade ago, nobody was even thinking about Not that. Not even, yeah. We used to go camping all the time as a kid, and always ground. Always, always ground, camping. ground camping. Now it's now it's a thing because we're, we're mixing it together. But overlandtraining.com, which we have in conjunction with Overland Journal Expedition Portal, all these overland things, entities, uh, tying it in with Mario Donovan from AT Overland. You guys are going to hear some stories from the beginning and also about AT Overland story, which is Adventure Trailers, if you didn't know it, uh, Adventure Trailer, Trailers Overland, uh, which makes a great equipment. The Summit, uh, the, the Habitat, and the new Atlas that's coming out that are all truck bed campers. Um, yeah, this is going to be a good podcast. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Mario, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. It's great to be here today. I know you're busy. You had to chalk out like an hour or two because you're so busy. You're like me. It's like insane here, which means a good problem, I guess. You got a good problem here. Yeah, it's like the rabbit in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or no, Alice in Wonderland. Alice wrong, in wrong, Wonderland. Wrong fable. <laughs> yeah. Do uh, So I noticed the guys in the back of the shop, you have a couple things going in. Um, you had the, there's like a sprinter van type that I saw that make a Dodge. The Dodge Promaster yeah. that we're working on right now. Being built out. And then you have the, uh, the, the summit being built and then a couple, a couple of the projects going on. So you guys do a lot of different stuff in the adventure trailer slash overlanding space. And I want to give, uh, the listeners kind of some context of your background and what you guys do. So can you just tell us about, uh, the company, and then how that got started. We can just go straight into it. Sure, sure. So it's a, it's a circuitous story, uh, but back in uh, 2000, uh, I was working in the printing industry, and I was doing mergers and acquisitions for large commercial printing plants. And uh, I got to that point in my life where I decided to reinvent myself. I thought about what are the things that I enjoy doing and how can I make my life more enjoyable in the process by making that my way of making a living. And I thought about that long and hard and I came to the conclusion that what makes me the happiest is being in the outdoors. So therefore, anything that I could do in the outdoor world should be satisfying. I didn't want to squander all the skills that I had learned through years of manufacturing experience and business and what have you. So I decided to start a tour company. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> because most of the people that I was rescuing out in the desert were foreign tourists. Ah. And I thought, these people need help, and I see a market opportunity. Is this Arizona or Colorado? At the no, time? I was in California at the time. Oh, California at the time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so fast forward, part of that process was developing a business plan, which involved trailers. I wanted to use 
highly capable off-road trailers as the sag wagon for the tour companies because they require less maintenance. As you might have multiple vehicles in a fleet, but you could get away with a couple of trailers. And if a vehicle broke down, you could hot swap a vehicle and still have the tour happen. Ah. Nobody made anything like what I wanted. Yeah. So I started searching overseas and I found a company in South Africa that was making something close to what I wanted. Imported a couple of those. And then suddenly I became a trailer importer. Oh, wow. That and, quick. <laughs> yes. We brought in, uh, I think, two containers of trailers at the time. And the first thing that we did was, well, let's hook these up and take them over the Rubicon Trail. Uh. They did not exit without damage. Okay. Uh, so th what we learned was that while these trailers were really well designed for that type of work in Africa, it wasn't suitable to a North American market where driving a four-wheel drive vehicle in Africa is something back in the day you had to do. Mm. That's how you got around. But here in the U.S., a four-wheel drive vehicle is mostly a recreational tool. Yeah. And so we like to take it to extremes in America. That's why we have things like the Rubicon Trail and Moab is a giant playground for people to, you know, push their vehicles to the extremes. Mm -hmm. right? So we needed to design something that would work in those environments as well. So we came up with the Horizon Trailer, which was a shorter version of, of a cargo trailer that's used in, in South Africa for, for hauling around your camping gear. And... We used off-the-shelf suspension systems initially because that seemed to be what everybody was doing. But what we quickly discovered was that they were inadequate for, for what we were trying to do. Um, torsion axles, which are co very common, give you good ground clearance, relatively inexpensive. Uh, they can fail in washboard environments. We discovered that the hard way. <laughs> yeah. In the fail. <laughs> in the fail, yes, yeah. yes, epically. And then uh, leaf springs, um, well pretty field serviceable and very common world around work for a specific load rating. And as soon as you overly load it, you lose compressive travel. Mm. If it's underloaded, then it has, it's too bouncy. It, it has too much compressive travel. And so it doesn't ride smoothly. So we thought, well, we need a suspension that is variable to adjust for those loads so that we always have the right compressive travel for the situation. Uh. And that's where air suspensions came in. And then we wanted to go independent so that, you know, you're never going to load a trailer equally one side or the other. So you can adjust the air. So you always have the right compressive travel on one side of the trailer or the other. Were you guys the first ones to do that, to integrate that? Yeah, in the U.S., for sure. What year was this time frame about? That was right around uh, 2006 when I came up with that concept. And that's when I met Scott Brady. And we put the first prototype trailer in his hands and he took it to the Arctic and beat the living crap out of it and yeah. it, it it did great scott brady from uh, overland journal and expedition yes, portal yes yes did they they documented that as well in overland journal yes he did uh, they actually did a short film of it as well uh, oh really yeah it never oh. circulated widely but yeah. it was a lot of fun yeah yeah i think i saw that there's a website that still has um traces of that i tried to contact his old one of his old buddies that was part of that little expedition. Yeah, thing. Chris. Chris, exactly. Yeah. Oh man. So even in South Africa, when they were doing that, the trailer stuff, it was more overlanding, flat ground terrain, high desert kind of stuff. Or was it? Were they getting into stuff like Rubicon? Or was that not? 
part of it. Not not really, no. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in East Africa. I lived in Ethiopia for eight years and two years in Kenya. And it's just bad roads. It, yeah. Potholes and... Potholes, washouts, mm-hmm. washboard, bridges gone, no bridges ever existed. Yeah. No fuel. Yeah. The hardships of Africa. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's very different now, of course. I mean, yeah. I left Africa in the 70s, but that that's what travel was. Mm-hmm. And so you had to be appropriately equipped for that. Mm. So you guys, you guys started evolving. I mean, that's almost like the beginning really of the, I guess, the surge of popularity that's now become the overland space. You were in the beginning beginnings of that yeah we like to call ourselves the 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 original gangster yeah, the overland OGs. company here in, in the u.s because yeah. back in 2002 when we were doing our first show uh we did a sportsman's show and it was so funny because people came up to us and asked us what what is that thing what what, what is that trailer what's it for wow. and we'd say oh, take it over the rubicon and they would look at us and go oh no way yeah and it was like Yes, way. Here's the pictures, and this wow. is what we do. And it's kind of funny. Back then, I remember sitting in my office. I had eight rooftop tents on the shelf that we had imported from South Africa, and I got. I'm holding my head in my hands, and I'm going, "Oh my God, what am I going to do with these things? Nobody's ever going to buy them." <laughs> and now you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a, a rooftop tent. From a myriad of different suppliers from yeah. all over the world. Where is that? So, the, where is the origin of the rooftop tent for people who are listening to this? Did it start in South Africa, Australia, and the, kind of like that, the remote parts of the world? Or I'm not a hundred percent sure of that. Um, it, I would say it's either South Africa or it might be Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. There is one uh, rooftop tent company that's been around for a really long time. Uh, they have a brand name called Magellina. And so you see a lot of rooftop tents on summer vehicles, Yeah, you know, camping in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and Europeans uh, are big travelers, yeah. like unlike the rest of the world. They, they live for that. There's well, a lot they of got time. Do. Yeah, they have all the time. They have very, uh, very liberal um, vacation policies yep. in, in Europe. So don't even think about like, trying to order something from Italy in August, everything's closed. Yeah. You, you, you can't get through to anyone. I know. That's amazing. What an amazing life. Yeah, I'm jealous, <laughs> I'm for sure. <laughs> the capitalist dr- grind here, it's completely different. Um, you guys evolved. What are some pinnacle moments for you guys as a company in this space that you've seen since the 2006 period to now? Has there been like jumps and spikes or ebbs and flows? Yes. Oh, you told me about the economy crash. Well, the economy crash, we, we were just starting to gain some momentum. Mm-hmm. I remember 2007 uh, was our biggest year ever for building trailers. It, and it sounds big, but it was only a two-man job. Yeah. We produced 63 trailers that year. Wow. We, yeah. Between we, two, guy, two guys. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was me and another guy doing assembly, and we had a third guy for a while, and and then the wheels came off the economy. Mm. And so everybody left. It, it, nobody had jobs. And uh, we had to downsize right away. And so we crammed everything into a 1,200-square-foot shop and continued to, to bump away. You know, believe, you just adapted really fast. You had to. Adapt or die. Yep. And so we struggled re- for quite a while. Mm. 
but the strong belief that this was definitely a market. Mm -hmm. And because I'm so passionate about vehicle dependent travel, I couldn't let go. Mm. And so we motored on and in 2008, we got involved with a couple of other companies and started expanding what we were doing. We had clients asking us to build vehicles like my old truck. And previously I didn't want to do it because it's kind of complicated and it's very personal. But in 2008, we'd do anything. We yeah. started building cabinets. We started doing electrical work. We started doing suspensions. We partnered with Flippack which was a, a topper company back in the day and started to bring them into the overland space and then pushing what you could do on the inside of these yeah. and make these really cool, compact, mobile living environments. Uh. And that's how we evolved as a company. The people took our name, Adventure Trailers, and just started calling us AT. We had gotten to the point where we sort of had a nickname, which is cool. It means like, all right, well, now we have some popularity. And it was easier, it rolled off the tongue better for people. And then as we diversified, then we, we uh, changed our name to AT Overland Equipment. We didn't want to lose our AT roots. Yeah, yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, right now, trailers is 3% of our market. Wow. At, at best. Yeah. There's a lot of players out there that are making trailers. In my opinion, they're a little too heavy and have the kitchen sink and the cutlery and all that stuff in there very much like the South African trailers. And they fill that washboard, open road, African savanna kind of travel need. But I don't think they're really well suited for the technical travel. Yeah. And so we try to, to, to walk that line between that long haul stuff and the technical stuff. That's why our chaser trailer has sort of been the benchmark for the trailer that you can take anywhere on the planet. Yeah. What are the different, because uh, I know you guys have a lot of things that you guys do specifically uh, for building out kind of the accommodations to live. Uh, and I like how you described it where it's the, you called it like the travel, living travel or something like that. Yeah. Vehicle dependent remote vehicle travel. Dependent. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what overlanding is, right? It, it, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's being dependent and living out of your rig, traveling to a destination. Yeah. Whether it's a motorcycle or a bicycle or, or a four by four truck or a van. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're building a house is yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. You just have to understand what kind of foundation you have to have. What's it going to survive? Mm. So what are some of the things that you guys offer now uh, in the suite of different things that you guys have? We have gotten very heavy into the truck topper market. Um, so we developed three different toppers. The The Habitat was the first topper we developed. And the original Habitat was actually for the Jeep JK four-door platform. The timing of that product when it came out didn't work well. The economy was still, you know, on training wheels and people just weren't spending money yeah. on, on their recreational vehicles. It got a lot of good play and it was an interesting idea. But we used some technology that had been previously used in other toppers mm -hmm. that was a little problematic. And because we didn't see the volume, we only built 30 of them. That's the topper that's integrated when you, you actually cut the top 
or if it has a removable top. You didn't cut the top. top. You replaced the, 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 the factory top. Oh, that's and right. And we had a top that bolted right in place. Got it. And then it extends. It the flips extends. forward. Oh. It flipped forward over the hood of yeah. the, of the uh, Jeep. And it was pretty cool. And then you you entered it through the rear passenger door. Wow. And you, the seats in the JK would fold down, and then you stand on the seat, and you go through a little hole in the ceiling. and then you Sleep know, up top. Yeah, you had a 15 and a half foot long tent up there. Wow. It was awesome. Uh, but it just, the it, 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 timing, right? Yeah. Just wasn't there. Uh, at that time, the company that we used to work with, Flippack, uh, went out of business. The product was conceptually interesting, but it hadn't made any any progress since it was originally developed in 76. Wow. Yeah, the product was virtually a clone of itself all the way through into, I, th- I want to say, 2012, something like that. Mm. Well, we really understood, we liked the concept, but it just needed to be executed differently. And we really needed to have a, a broader market and needed to be available for more trucks. Mm. So instead of using fiberglass, we wanted to use sheet metal, which is our forte. That's all our trailers are sheet metal. So we went with aluminum and honeycomb composites to develop a really lightweight top. And so the first one was the adaptation of the original habitat. But instead of having it flip forward, we had it flip backwards. No one had ever done that before in a topper. And what it does is it creates this instant awning space behind. Because yeah. when you live out of the back of a truck you're working out of the back of the truck. So why not protect the back of the truck? Yeah. That was the first product. The product was designed in such a way that all of the components are part of a master system of parts that you can develop other products off of. Uh, It's almost like a vehicle platform. Yeah. You know, that's how the major manufacturers do it. They have a chassis and then they have a squillion different bodies that go on it. Yeah. So from there, we developed the Summit Topper. So it uses the same lower sections, but you have a new mid and upper section. And that's a wedge style. We did that for primarily the four-season traveler. Yeah. Because of that roof line, it'll shed snow, wind, and rain. You have less interior tent volume, so therefore you have less cubic volume to to. Uh, climatically control Mm. and because of the geometry of that where the hinge point is and where the lifting point is it allows you to carry a load on top Mm. so you can have a hundred pounds of gear on that oh wow click the latches and still push it up and pull it down yeah which is nice for the person who's the multi-sport i've got the kayak i got the skis i have whatever it is you want to put on top Mm -hmm. so it's the habitat, because of the nature of it, it's flipping backwards. You can't have anything on the roof. Yeah. So we wanted to solve that problem for people. Uh. And then uh, this year, we released the Atlas Topper, which uses those components again, but changes the lifting mechanism. Yeah. So it's, it has more cubic interior space than a Summit does, less than a Habitat but it gives you this different space to use on the inside and windows all the way around. Mm-hmm. And this uh, one's go, this is the one that goes straight, straight up. Straight up. Yeah. yeah. It uses a bifold, uh, lifting system to, to lift up each end. But again, 
it's one of those things where, well, it's suitable for a person who needs a specific type of performance characteristic, but it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah. It's not good for carrying a big load on top. While you can walk on the roof when it's closed, you won't be able to put a lot of weight on there and get it to lift up at the same time. Okay. And I noticed, you know, you, you guys transition into the truck. And when we talk about go rigs, which is just like a bug out option in a vehicle, we, we always typically recommend trucks. I prefer diesel trucks, but, uh, and we had a discussion before this podcast about gross vehicle weight. What is your, what is your, I'm curious to, to hear your input on gross vehicle weight and, and the importance kind of in considering overlanding with a lot of stuff because you're very knowledgeable on, on, uh, uh overland travel. It comes down to safety and reliability. Mm. It is really the, the core of it. In the overland market space, there's a lot of iconic images that people see of trucks in South Africa or Australia just just laden down with all kinds of things. Yeah. And they're mid-sized trucks. In in our North American definition, they're a mid-sized truck. Mm. However, those trucks are not US spec trucks. They are spec for those countries and they have higher gross vehicle weight ratings than uh, our trucks do here in the same size category. Um, to be more specific, say, for example, comparing a, a Toyota Tacoma to a Toyota Hilux, mm -hmm. they are two different animals yeah. in terms of their load capacity. But still there's that marketing imagery. I see this mid-sized truck and it's got all this cool stuff on it. And therefore it must be cool. And, I'm going to load it down. And I'm going to load it down. Um, most of the Tacomas that I see in the overland space here in the U S are over gross vehicle weight. And that ends up resulting in higher centers of gravity, uh, more wear and tear on drivetrain components, frame, truck tires. beds, tires, everything. Yeah. Um, so GVW is really important. I'm a fan of full size trucks because they do have the GVW and I don't have to worry about that additional wear and tear. Mm -hmm. I've been on both sides of this. I've been in the mid-sized truck space and loaded the hell out of them and paid the prices for, for that. Um, frame cracks, uh, firewall cracking, drivetrain components wearing out prematurely, uh, poor fuel mileage, uh, accelerated uh, piston and uh, valve wear. Yeah. Because these engines are just being pushed, engines, right? Yeah. Beyond what they were designed for. And on the other side of the equation, I, I'm now a big fan of the Ram platform. Mm -hmm. I like the Ram trucks. I think they're well-built, solid front axle, the front suspension systems available from AEV are just awesome. So you end up with a truck that's very drivable for day-to-day -day use on the street, extremely capable off-road, but have a GVW that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, for example, I have a Ram 3500 that has got over a thousand mile range with 74 gallons of fuel, running 40 inch tires, has all the recovery gear you could possibly need. And when I put the camper on it, it's still 2,500 pounds under its payload. Wow. So I don't have to worry about 
premature transmission wear, drivetrain wear, engine wear, et cetera. That's the one out here, right? That's the, yeah, the, the XL, the 3500. Was that you? That was used for an expedition that was uh, in. No, you're confusing. We got two cool trucks out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There <laughs> so is. the other cool truck out there is a Ram 2500. Okay. That one is uh, running on 41 inch tires. Mm -hmm. It has the the Cummins 670, so it's a 2014 with a with a six speed manual transmission, which I, I just love to drive. I love that. Yeah, it's fun. We'll have to go for a spin. That's awesome. Um, that truck is actually the original prototype for the AEV Ram systems. Wow. Yeah. It the inside of the door panel. There's a little tag that that Dave Harrington put in there, and that was his personal truck. Wow. And uh, we just picked that up this this past year. That's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. It's because um, now it, it's a thing, right? AV. It's a it's a whole line. Oh dang! Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's they're the most capable trucks and rigs that are available from Dodge now, right? And surprisingly nimble. Wow. Uh, I mean, I have. I should be embarrassed to say this. I have four Ram trucks. Nice. And sounds like me. <laughs> I love Ram. But uh, the. Um, the ones with the eight-foot beds and the regular cabs, man, they whip a circle like nobody's business. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the other trucks, like the crew cab ones, which are a little bit longer wheelbase, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes take a stab or two to get into a parking space. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, the regular cabs with the eight-foot beds, not at all. Wow. Just whip them right in. Yeah. So you, when you look at uh, gross vehicle weight, um, I didn't – I mean, I, I knew this, but it's important to, like, you know – talk about this again and again that's not including the fuel that's in on on board yeah that, that's, that's that's dry that's a dry weight exactly yeah yeah it's a dry weight and it's significant on a truck like my 3500 that has the the two fuel tanks because 74 gallons of diesel weighs 500 pounds yeah it's and, very and easy change yeah. yeah top it off and you're already there plus the people Plus the kit, plus the, the people, the kit, and and you have to consider when you are building a truck, you have to think about well, what did you take off and what did you replace it with? Yeah. So there's the the unsprung weight, which is the weight of the tires and the wheels and mm -hmm. everything that's you know attached to the to that part of the the drivetrain, mm -hmm. and then you know there's the factory bumper that you took off that weighed nothing, and then you put the the heavy duty bumper on with the 150 pound winch in there and yep. your lights and compressors and all of these things that are useful for for the remote travel to keep you self-sufficient and keep you safe but they add up on weight is that one of the reasons that uh for the 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 setups the summit the habit the habitat that you guys went with aluminum what were some of the reasons because i know a lot of people or a lot of companies are using different materials but you guys have exclusively gone with aluminum. What's that reason? Aluminum is very durable, uh, and it, it's relatively easy to work with. And if you design well, if you minimize your welds, then you don't have issues with uh, cracking on annealed welds. Mm -hmm. You can get some flexibility out of aluminum because things do need to flex. You need to have some give. And then by bonding in our our honeycomb composites, we add the rigidity where we need it. Mm. So we're able to deliver a topper that has, you know, a full-blown tent system in it for 350 pounds. Wow. If you compare that to the conventional 
rooftop tent methodology, mm-hmm. you would have, say, the fiberglass topper, yep. probably 200 pounds plus, mm-hmm. depending on the model and how much glass is in it. Then you would have your roof rack system, could be anywhere between 80 to 150 pounds of, of roof rack, yep. and then throw on the tent. And that now you're adding another 150 to 180 pounds of rooftop tent. Guess what? You just exceeded what our topper is. And your center of gravity will actually be higher because your average rooftop tent usually is 12 to 14 inches in depth. Yep. Then you added the roof rack. You're probably adding a minimum of four inches to maybe six inches of height mm-hmm. plus the topper. Uh, our our uh, Habitat, Summit, and Atlas units are only eight inches tall wow. when, they're, when they're closed up. And because we're taking that weight and spreading it out over a longer distance, then you have better weight distribution fore and aft on the vehicle. Yeah. As opposed to it all being placed primarily on the rear axle. Yeah, I, I learned that lesson the hard way with the the forerunner. I had a I started out with that 2016. I've had other kind of off road rigs that were Toyota style vehicles, forerunners, land cruisers. And, you know, I think they're averaging around 1,500 pounds of gross vehicle weight, which isn't a lot uh, of, of capacity, right? And then you take the, I had an easy on Jazz that I got from Paul um, yeah. and put that on there. Then I had the truck vault system, the fridge, the bumpers, um, mm-hmm. the skid plates. And then I yep. got to the point where it was so unsafe and so unsettling where I had almost no confidence for the capability of the rig off-road because I had a high center of gravity and everything, even including the brakes, were just on the fringe of just feeling like it was going to fall apart. And mm-hmm. I didn't like that feeling. But then, you know, I've always had this diesel. I've had this diesel truck since 2008. Was, I bought it brand new. And I think it was like 3,500 to 4,000 pounds of load capacity in that, in that vehicle. And it could go anywhere load it mm-hmm. down and I don't ever feel like I'm on the cusp cause I'm not I'm thousands of pounds, even loaded down away from that number. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody w- with your experience, who's overlanded all over the world. Um, I think that's a, like, it was a good point you brought up. Like people see the, the Hilux or the land cruiser overseas and don't realize that diesel with those axles isn't the same as this lightweight Tacoma or Tundra or whatever we're getting into here. In the U.S., it's completely mm-hmm. different, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very different. Question for you: Yeah, what kind of mileage did you get with your Forerunner after it was all built up? Oh, eight miles per gallon. And what do you get in your 20, diesel? Twenty-two miles per gallon okay. chipped and deleted. Right. Yeah. And, and and then the the other thing is is that what you're looking at in that small truck environment is this continual process of compensating. Mm. for a problem that's been created. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, I added all this extra weight. Gosh, now I need to do all this suspension work. Mm. Oh, now I'm getting a lot of body roll. Oh, okay, I'm going to switch to these different shocks and going to do different valving so I can try to control some of those things. And it's because I added all this weight up top. Yeah. And it's just, it's this snowball effect of having to continually compensate for for the detrimental things that we do to the small vehicles. Yeah. yeah. Whereas when you get into the higher GVW tr- trucks, you don't have this problem because it was initially designed to work within that range of weight Yeah. to begin with. So the torque and the power is already there. Like I've had guys 
who they've done the whole build out of the rigs and realize they don't have the power to push the rig. So they get like superchargers and it's like, man, yeah. if you're getting a yeah. supercharger just to get the weight over the ground off road, that's probably not a good thing to do, especially reliability wise. Right. And, and what did we do for the brakes? Yeah. Probably nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Because there's no way to do that. Yeah. Right. You can't, that, that's another, that's another problem that people have. It's like, well, I want to go to a smaller wheel so I can get more rubber on the tire. Mm-hmm. But that limits you on the disc size. Yeah. And you kind of want to go up on the disc size to be able to stop. Ideally to yeah. stop that larger, that larger, uh, tire that you're running down the road and also the increased weight of the vehicle. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's a conundrum for people. It absolutely is. Let, let's talk about suspension because you, 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 you were educating me on, um, the, the, the Dodge platform and the suspension and you talked about compression. Um, can you explain to me the 60, 40% ratio with compression for these type of vehicles? It's, it's sort of a round number we use. It's not any particular hard science, but what we do know is that when we're traveling off road, that we're more likely to need compressive travel than, than extension travel, mm-hmm. uh, because we're going to hit bumps and we've got this, all this load that we're carrying and we need to be able to support it well when we come under compression. So we say 60, 40, we want to have about 40% extension on the suspension and about 60% compression, uh, when the truck is sitting rested with its load. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So that requires that you do front end work with your truck. I don't mean the front suspension. I mean, you have to start off your truck project by weighing your truck. If you can go to a commercial truck scale, great. If not, just go to your local dump. You're going to weigh the front axle. You're going to weigh the rear axle, both separately. Yep. With you in the truck, with full fuel. Mm. And then you're just going to do a final weigh to get the total just to confirm that the scale is right. Yep. So you're putting the front end on the scale, getting the load, rear end on the scale, and then the complete vehicle with e- fuel. Exactly. Okay. Then look at your truck specs from the manufacturer. Because mm. that's giving your, your balance, because this is a balance game. It is a balance game, yep. precisely. Uh, so that will allow you to then understand what you have left available to work with. And then you can start totalizing what your vision is for your truck and mm-hmm. see where you're going to end up. Ideally, you want to stay within your GVW and the front and rear axle ratings that are given to you by your manufacturer. Mm. There are important reasons for doing that, so the truck handles well. Also, so you understand how to properly deflate your tires. Some people will say, well, I just take all my tires down to 15. Well, no, you don't. Yeah. Because I bet your front end and your rear end weigh differently. Yeah. You're trying to achieve as much balance as you can. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. I it's interesting because I never thought about that in the context of suspension kits. But a lot of the kits that we get off the shelf, they're just bolt-ons, and mm-hmm. it, and sometimes, especially without considering what you're doing and maybe building up the rear of the vehicle, putting up a load because you're doing a camper, you don't think about those things because that suspension kit isn't designed for that. It's just designed maybe to level you, maybe just to give you a little bit more compression. But when you look at like even my, my project where I'm building out, you know, with the 
um, the deck system, the summit camper, and then putting all my accessories and everything on the rear end, I have to pay attention to my suspension and it, it has to be custom. It just can't be a off the shelf solution. Yeah. You want to be, you want to be thoughtful about it. Um, the only suspension company that I know of that offers suspensions by weight is old man emu. They oh. have their, their light, medium and heavy kits. Yeah. But still, it's still off the shelf. Yeah. It, it ideally you have done your homework on the on the front end of your project so that you know what kit might work for you. Mm. But just to pick a kit based on its lift height yeah. to fit X tire size, in my opinion, is not a good way to start. Yeah. You really need to understand what you're going to carry around. Yeah. And, and then that varies the solution, obviously. Exactly. We were talking about your truck earlier and I, we were going through that question and answer process. And then I asked you, are you going to tow? Yeah. And you said, Oh, well, yeah, I will. So, oh, so, so you're going to have a variable load on the very furthest end of your truck, which is the biggest fulcrum ever. Yep. And you're going to have to allow for 10 to 15% of the total weight of that trailer. So if you had a 5,000 pound trailer, guess what? You're going to be putting anywhere between 500 to 750 pounds of additional weight on that coupler. Wow. And that's pressing down on the back end of your truck. So adding airbags is a good solution there for you Yeah, because you're not always towing, but sometimes you are and you need to compensate for that. What are the benefits of airbags? Because I'm doing airbags on mine with uh, the, the AT Overland Summit uh, build. What's the benefits of airbags on the back, which a stack on the leaf spring set, right? Mm-hmm. Well, typically they go between the frame and the axle. Okay. The, the benefit is that you can adjust the air to get to return back to a proper ride height. Because as soon as you put that trailer on, you start to mm-hmm. reduce that compressive travel. You might have been at that 60%. And then you, you hung the trailer on the back and all of a sudden you lost, you know, an inch or two of, of compressive travel. And so you want to try to regain that so that when you are going down the road and you hit a big pothole or, or a big bump or something like that, that your suspension is not going to completely bottom out yeah. and reduce your ability to control the vehicle. Hmm. Which is important, especially when you get into the, uh, the camper shells, which are, are weighing a lot more. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So when you, when you put the airbags on, do you, you manually air them? There's versions of it that you don't have to, to have the system integrated. True. But some, most systems, you basically plug in the air and then air it up or let it down. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and individual brands will have um, minimum and maximum uh, PSI ratings yeah. for each of the springs. It's good to know what's going in them, but typically you're not going to equally match them. Yeah. Because you'll have une- uneven weights. You know, yeah. A lot of trucks have have their fuel tanks on one side of the truck, mm, okay. and, and so they over time those trucks start to lean a little bit as the springs get older. Yeah, and uh, so you the, can make a manual adjustment. Based you can on make that. a manual manual adjustment with that air to get get that back up where it should be. Uh, okay, and uh, when you when you're doing the the airbag thing, um, when you're air, airing it down. It's it's based off appearance, right? Is there not there's not a PSI gauge as far as what you what you could tell via PSI? You're looking at the actual back of it and going, hey, do I need to come up or come down depending on what it looks like? 
That's correct. It is, it is visual. Okay. Uh, it's, you're not going to use an empirical number of, of uh, air pressure. Yeah. You're going to be looking at it visually to see the, the airbag shape. The most common airbag is what's called a double convoluted. It's, it's, it looks like two donuts stacked on top of each other. Yeah. And when those are sized properly for the application, when they are properly inflated, they, they look right. Think of the think of the bulges on the Michelin man's waistline. Yeah, yeah, right. And if those if those bulges are touching each other, well, it's underinflated. Okay. Ideally, they're inflated enough to where there's just a little bit of a gap between them, and they're not in contact with each other. Okay. You don't want to overextend an air spring or underinflate it so that its rubber is rubbing on itself. Okay. Because it'll it will wear. Do you ever use the air system that's uh, in the back of the vehicle to balance or level your living situation uh, at any point? Or could you? I guess you could. Yeah. Um, I'm more inclined to park my truck on Manually a rock. Manually level it. Yeah. yeah. Either dig a hole or, or yeah. find a rock or a log okay. to balance Because it's not going to give you much variation in, in level. No, it won't. Okay. No. You, you might get out of an air system. You know, air assist bags on a rear end of a leaf sprung truck, you might get an inch or two. Okay. And you guys have, you guys actually uh, are dealers, the Arizona dealer for four wheel campers. Is that oh, correct? yeah. Okay. Yeah. And let's, can we talk about that a little bit? Because um, that w- that was one of the routes that I wanted to go, but, it is, but I decided against it because I was going to do a lot of overland travel and temporarily living in certain spaces. So most of my time was going to be spent away from the truck and just mm-hmm. sleeping in the truck. So I decided not to do a live-in situation. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm, depending on where I'm at, I'll use a hotel, I'll use a, a log cabin, Airbnb. And so I'm not exclusively looking to live. But I think long-term, you know, down the road, I'd like to do that. And you guys offer different solutions for four-wheel campers, which are full live-in situations. And mm-hmm. you have one on the back of your your uh, your Dodge Ram, right? Yeah, my 2008. Yeah. yeah, I've got a flatbed on there. It's great, great platform. Love it. The four-wheel camper is a really cool product. In the market space of uh, sliding campers for trucks, they have the... the Slide-in is using the truck bed? Using the truck bed, and they slide in, yeah. Uh, They're some of the lightest weight out there, and it's because they use aluminum in their framework. Older-style campers actually use wood. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. The older versions. Yeah, they're glued and stapled, yeah. But four-wheel campers has always been an aluminum frame. Mm Mm-hmm. And aluminum has that quality that we like about it for our products, which it can flex. Uh, it can flex and it can, it can come back. Yeah. Uh, we also carry their flatbed products. Four wheel campers was the first one that I'm aware of in the U.S. to develop a flatbed camper for the U.S. market. What's nice about the flatbed campers, the interior ergonomics of how that space works is incredible. Yeah. You can have two trucks side by side, one with a sliding camper and one with a flatbed camper. Identical trucks with the exception of the campers on them. Totally different. You walk into a flatbed, you'd think you were in something that was twice the size. Because uh, you get all the space advantage of not having the size of the not bed. Sides of the bed and the wheel wells. Oh, the wheel wells. is what That's a big consideration, yeah. And then what you can do with the flatbed is you can build under 
bed boxes like we do. Mm-hmm. And so now you have all this storage for things that would otherwise be inside your camper in a slide-in. Uh, Stuff that you don't want to have in your camper. Yeah. Your jack, you've got your air hose, you know, you got your, your wet, muddy boots. Things like that can stay outside of your living space uh, and be where they're more applicable. Yeah. The, the slide-ins are less expensive. There's less financial commitment to, to do a, to do a sliding camper because you're not heavily modifying the truck. Yeah. A flatbed is more of a commitment. You have to pull either you're starting with a sourced cab chassis truck from the factory, which has no bed on it and is designed for upfitment, or you're removing your bed and having to have a flatbed made or bought and installed. So it's considerably more expense. And then the flatbed campers themselves are more expensive than the slide-ins. Yeah, because there's more space. There's more space. Cabinetry, everything else. Yeah. Yeah. We were at Overland Expo East, oh gosh, a couple of years ago, and uh, it got really cold outside, and I had my flatbed camper out there, and we got 12 guys in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. There All was alcohol warm. involved, yeah, but beer. it was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's awesome. Yeah. No way we could have done that in the same uh, model line of sliding would not have happened. Wow. And you guys do the full builds from scratch, like everything. You guys could do everything here. We do we do everything here. We build the flatbeds, we do suspension here. We build custom flatbeds because not not everyone has the same requirements. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we build ex- slightly extended flatbeds because we're building a truck that's going on 40-inch tires. And now what do you do with the spare? So now we have to build some space onto the flatbed to allow for that spare that will no longer fit underneath the truck. Yeah. So all the custom stuff. All the custom stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And we do custom solar. We do custom toilet systems that don't use any water. Just all manner of good fun stuff that keeps the guys entertained every day. That's great. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. What what is your opinion? Because, you know, you've seen the evolution or progression of the overland space. What's your opinion on where it's at right now based on where it was? And then where do you think it's going? That's really interesting question. Where it started, I didn't ever believe that would be where it is today. Mm. And I have to give a hats off to Scott Brady for using the internet and a web forum to create a tribe. Yeah. That's how it Expedition happened. Expedition Portal. Yeah, Expedition yep. Portal. And then then the journal supports that as well. Yeah. It has grown from this fringe group of people to now it's it's marketable. You see it in vodka ads. You'll see a picture of some Land Rover with a rooftop tent on it and you go, "Oh gosh, I guess if I drink that vodka, I'll have that beautiful experience." <laughs> But it's become mainstream enough yeah. to to permeate that part of our, our awareness. Where it's going, I think like all fads, it will maybe eventually fall a bit out of disfavor or become harder to do with increased population and more land closures and mm. travel restrictions and things like that. But I don't think that the core fringe group will ever go away. Yeah. They're just crazy and they're not going to change. Yeah, they're there. They they started the movement. They've been there. Right, exactly. I I see more variation and I see that overlanding is 
infiltrating the more conventional outdoor space now hmm. to the extent that that now overlanding's been included in the outdoor retailer show yeah yeah i noticed that because what it really is and always has been for those of us out on the fringe all these vehicles they're just tools yeah and how we build them they're just tools for what it is that we want to do what whatever your passion is in the outdoors maybe you're a fisher fisherman maybe you're a photographer maybe you're a rock climber maybe you're a backcountry skier maybe you like to hunt whatever it is this vehicle is just making that experience more pleasurable for you yeah yeah my personal pursuit is the best happy hour spots on the planet yeah it's simple i like that idea that's at the end of the day yeah that's what it's all about for me yeah yeah i'm a big fly fisherman so i think about like the access to the best fly fishing places in the United States, you have to be able to have the capability to get there. Right. And then after you're done fly fishing a long day, why not just camp and stay there? So facilitating, mm-hmm. you know, a, a proper and comfortable rig setup, uh, which is why I went with the summit is, is, is my lifestyle. Um, and I think people forget that right in the overland space. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they'll build out a rig and they'll drive up to the peak and they'll take a picture of it, which is fine as well. But it's more about facilitating the process and the journey of what you enjoy outdoors. Because the more we can get outdoors, the better off mm-hmm. we'll ultimately be. Right. I mean, that's how we look at our business, for example. We, we don't see ourselves as, as a manufacturer of products. Mm-hmm. We, we see ourselves as we're, we're a partner in, in enabling you to have your experiences. Yeah, I like that. We just happen to share some commonality in those experiences. Yeah, I like that. Do you do you see anything? And I haven't really noticed it. I mean, there are some big companies out there that are a little, you know, they're just doing different things. They're hustling and bustling. Have you, uh, coming from a tactical industry because of my background, I've seen a lot of toxic behavior and manipulation and kind of trying to overstep people and just weird things uh, that have taken place in business. Do you see that in the overlanding space? Because when I go to Expo, I feel I enjoy Expo and the people that are there, meaning the vendors who have tents and who are pushing uh, the culture, it seems very positive. It seems different. Hmm. I would say that by and large, the overland industry and the people who are overlanders are a pretty, pretty friendly, hospitable group. Yeah. We all have the same goals, which is to get out there. Yeah. And I don't, I don't see toxicity mm-hmm. as you're describing in some other industries, which are highly competitive. Yeah. Well, it's also a big multi-billion million dollar companies too. And maybe that's a thing because now you're seeing more larger corporations get involved in overlanding. It's for the first time REI has a rooftop tent set up now and they're talking about overlanding things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i wonder if it's like the difference between us and those other industries is we're all up and coming small businesses doing better in the space but it doesn't seem to be overwhelmed with large shareholding companies maybe mm. i don't know yeah i don't know that there's a succinct answer for that yeah but i think my my gut impression is that by and large, these are smaller companies, as mm-hmm. you said. And so 
it's not all about shareholder value. Yeah. It's more about the experience mm. and, and what are we delivering to customers? Yeah. Is we're delivering experiences. Yeah. What's the future for the company uh, in the next five to 10 years? What's your goals and objectives? Well, we have probably at least another 10 years worth of, of products to develop. Uh, we're constantly talking internally with overlanders outside, monitoring what people are doing and thinking about what's going to be the next thing that we can make that will enhance their experiences. I think some of the interesting changes that will come about will be the eventual release of electric trucks. Oh, interesting. Because we've been in all hydrocarbon-based activity, yeah. by and large. Yeah. And that's going to change that space. Literally the day that Elon Musk revealed the Tesla truck, the Cybertruck, mm -hmm. I got an email asking me if I could build a summit topper for the Tesla truck. Wow. <laughs> it was an awkward question to ask. I just told the guys like, well, if you can get your hands on one, we'll measure it and we'll figure it out. Wow. But that those seeds are planted. Big companies are investing big money yeah. to go down that road. So we're going to have to be able to fulfill that. And I think the biggest challenge for us is to figure out how to do it lighter and stronger. Wow. Because electric vehicles will be impacted exactly the same way that hydrocarbon-based vehicles are. You add weight, you screw around with tire sizes, your range goes down. I was going to say, it's the range now. It's, which is even a bigger consideration. But it's a range for, for also for you know, the gas or diesel vehicle. It's, yeah. a, it's, the, yeah, same, it's yeah. the same problem. It's so true, yeah. Right. I don't even think about it that way. It's and that, and just in talking about the range, you're a big proponent too of extended range fuel tanks because you come from Africa where you could be in the middle of nowhere and for hundreds of miles you can get to a gas station and the gas station's not even open because mm -hmm. fuel is a, a commodity there and you and it's a rare commodity. It's not like it's just plentiful like it is here. True. Uh, what's your what's your uh, what's your ideology on you know sustaining fuel for the long haul? I like to have a lot of fuel for a couple of reasons. One, as you know, as a diesel owner, there's quite a bit of variability in diesel pricing. Mm -hmm. And when you see it at a good price, you kind of oh, yeah. want to buy some. 100 gallons at a time. <laughs> right. So it's, it's, you know, economically it makes sense to buy some volume. Yeah. The other reason for me is when I get out, I like to stay out. Yeah. And so I'm going to go out to an area, but I'm not just going to pass through the area. It's not like I'm just doing the Mojave Road or something like that. Yeah. I'm going to go out to an area and I'm going to stay and I'm going to explore from there. Mm. And so I'm going to consume a lot of fuel in that process of getting out to the middle of some, some space and then saying, all right, well, I'm going to go down that trail and then I'm going to go down that trail and I'm going to go down that trail. Uh so you could sustain yourself for longer periods of time so you don't have to go back for a resupply. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love the, I see all the stuff you guys do. And it's funny, before we started talking about different things, and, you know, I look at you as, you are 
you and Scott Brady um, are the Overland OG guys, mm-hmm. the the originators of the Overland space in North America, or at least the United States. Mm-hmm. And um, so I take everything you guys say um, seriously, and I'm paying attention. I'm trying to absorb everything I, I can get. Um, but the fact that you guys consistently talk about the extended range, because Scott did the same thing, extended range fuel tanks, load capacity, gross vehicle weight as being one of the hugest considerations. And I see the space kind of, it's starting to shape now because a year to two years ago, I mean, even at SEMA, everything was just as much stuff as you could put on a rig. Let's do it. And still, you know, mm-hmm. it, the, they get the biggest steel manufacturer and throw steel on. Now people are getting smarter or companies are getting smarter and consumers are getting smarter. They're lighter weight options. They're looking at extended range fuel tanks. They're paying attention to gross vehicle weight and you see it kind of navigating the right way and you guys are like the originators originators of that. Mm-hmm. I'm just regurgitating what you guys are saying and reinforcing my own beliefs with actual information from guys who have experienced over the long haul. Crazy. I love that. Yeah. I mean, if you, it stops being fun when you break stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, and so you really need to be thinking about that, or we need to be thinking about that as 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 providers of equipment. Yeah. that we are building product that's designed for the long haul. Overlanding is about the long haul. Mm-hmm. And it's not about putting the most cheap stuff on a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Growing up in Africa, when you went down a path, there could be a pile of boulders or a huge mud pit in front of you and you were faced with, do I go through this or do I preserve the asset of the vehicle? Mm-hmm. Because preserving that asset of the vehicle may mean the difference between life and death for me. Oh yeah. One puddle between life or death. One puddle may mean I cannot get that vehicle out. Yep. And I'm 200 miles from anything. And I can't carry enough stuff to walk 200 miles. Yeah. It's so you really think about that. It's very different from the recreational four-wheel drive guy who will approach that same situation and go. Gun it. (laughs) Well, there's a giant puddle and a pile of rocks. This is awesome. We might break an axle in the process, but uh, my buddy's down the trail with his fifth wheel and we'll just (laughs) drag it back and... That's so true. So it's a yeah. di- so it's a different thought process. Yeah. We're not always faced with those situations here in in North America like you would be elsewhere in the world. Yeah. But you hear about people routinely dying out in Death Valley cuz they they walked 200 meters away from the tour bus and couldn't find their way back. Yep. Yeah. That It's actually commonplace in rural uh uh, U- U.S. You have people doing that all the time, mm-hmm. especially in the winter time. I mean, Montana, Wyoming, even Colorado. Oh man, people just get you know in your near Uray and Silverton. It happens all the time. The guys are come off of cliffs because or get dislocated from their car, and mm-hmm. you never see them again. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you can quickly get disoriented if you don't have your wits about you. Yeah. What do you think if somebody is listening to this podcast and they want to get into overlanding? Uh, they've never had access to, to this type of information. What are a couple tips that you would tell them and what they need to do first in getting into it? 
boy, that's a chewy question. <laughs> Tap on the resources that exist there already mm. that are reliable, incredible resources, like the Expedition Portal, yeah. the Overland Journal Magazine. There's a wealth of knowledge there. Yeah, It does take a lot of filtering to understand it for your own personal needs or wishes. As people get started, even if they are experienced, I still recommend this. Make a list of every single piece of equipment that you take with you or that you are planning to take with you on every trip till you get good at this. When you come back from that trip, debrief. Look at that list and say, did I use this item? And ask yourself, yes or no. Yes, I used it. Okay, great. If I didn't have it, would it have been inconvenient or would it have been life-threatening? Case in point, first aid kit. You should pack one. Yeah. Do you want to use it? No. Yeah. Did you use it on the trip? No, I didn't use it. Okay. Doesn't mean it comes off the list. It needs to stay on the list. Yeah. Mission, because if you yeah. do need it, you want to have it. Yeah. But if you happen to have a Swiss Army knife that has a corkscrew, and then you also have one of those cool rabbit ear things in your kitchen, and you've got a bottle opener on the side of your bumper, <laughs> but you have a bottle opener in your Swiss Army knife. That's a redundancy. Do you really need all that stuff? And so you need to ask yourself that question. It's like, am I willing to, to go with the barest minimum kit. The, the barer your kit, the more likely you are to take very, very good care of it uh, and keep track of it. Yeah, like quality over quantity of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. That's going to keep you on the path to staying within your GVWR. Ah, uh, so this all leads back to, to GVWR. Right. Think like a backpacker or a winter mountaineer. Yep. who is looking at every ounce on their back they've got to carry and every ounce that they add is going to inhibit their performance mm -hmm. on the mountain. And so really look hard and fast at those things. It's very interesting. I have a good friend, Louis Enrique Getter. He and, and his better half, they spent, I think, three years bumming around Central and South America. Living the dream. Living the dream. 60 Series Land Cruiser. And they left with like all the things that they thought they needed. Mm -hmm. And I think he was somewhere, he hadn't gotten too far. I think he was in Guatemala and he's, they got rid of like half of their junk. Wow. And he, and when he came back, I asked him, I says, so if there was anything that you left out, what do you think it was? And he says, you know, he says, I wish I had another fridge. Oh, wow. Because a, he liked to cook. Yeah. B, it made financial sense to keep their costs down yep. on the trip. And C, he didn't always have access to good, fresh food. Uh, so he needed to be able to preserve that. When he did have access, he wanted to stock up on it. Wow. That's unique. I, yeah, I never even thought about that because that's sustaining life in the preservation of that food as you're moving. Right. We have to be careful to get to avoid getting too focused on all this cool Farkle stuff that, you know, that maybe aesthetically adds to a truck but doesn't do anything. Yeah. Th think about those core things. You know, you need to have shelter. You need to have hydration. Yep. Hydration first, right? Mm -hmm. Shelter potentially second. Yep. Food third. Yep. 
the staples of survival. The staples of survival. Yeah. Think yeah. like a caveman. Yeah. What's the first, if you were going to modify a vehicle, what would be the first uh, thing you would modify on that vehicle? Golf umbrella. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? <laughs> Why a golf umbrella? Golf umbrella is a piece of portable shelter. Oh. You can collect water in it. Yeah. Turn it upside down. Yes. Yeah. If you have to walk out in the rain, snow, the sun, you have portable shelter. I like that. And they're huge. They're huge. Yeah. If you're strutting through some unknown town, it's a gentlemanly thing to walk with a cane, wouldn't you say? Wow. And then if you're in the uh, the bush or somewhere in the in the woods, more rural, you could just plant it in the ground and that's your shelter. It's like a shelter half. It could be. And also, it's a weapon. Wow. See, now You can I'm hold somebody at bay with a golf umbrella. You're poking them in the chest. Gosh. Right? You guys sell golf umbrellas? I'm going to have to pick one no, up No, I now. don't. <laughs> but every vehicle that I build... For myself, the you first put one thing, in. The first thing, it gets a golf umbrella in, in the back. I've never heard that, and it makes the most sense. Because all of my all friends who go off on their big epic trip, yeah, and I'm ready to bid them adieu. I said, "You got a golf umbrella?" And I go, "No." And I give them one. And then three, four, five, six months later, I get an email from them. It's like, "Dude, thank you for that golf umbrella. It saved my bacon." We got a flat tire and had to walk 10 miles and it was 120 degrees or whatever it was. Wow. And they go, that was the best thing we had. And you could turn it upside down to capture water, like you said. Yeah. Uh-huh. Is there a brand that you recommend? No. That's a serious, I'm going to buy one today. I'll show you one after this. Okay. Yeah. Golf umbrellas, um, they're typically made with carbon fiber or some sort of synthetic material. They don't have any metal. Yeah. They're uh, aluminized on the outside, so they reflect Yeah. Uh, they reflect the sun very well, and then they're black on the inside, so they don't reflect up into your eyes and tire your eyes. Wow. Because it's made specifically for golf, so it's yeah. it's more efficient, more made mm-hmm. made better yep. than a standard umbrella. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they have vents on them, so they, they don't blow backwards, yeah. right? Yep. <laughs> Mind is blown right now. It's a little thing. It is, but it's But super, it's all the little things. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. How you outlined that is, you know, in special operations, when I used to, like, in reconnaissance or a long-range operation, we would look at the ounces of everything, right? And yes. the, and And you mentioned that, but you also mentioned the dual purpose of things. Yes. You want things that do multiple things very good instead of maybe five different things that do something just well. Mm-hmm. It's like that dual purpose function that's lighter, more efficient. That's just the way to go because ounces equals pounds and you got to pay attention to those ounces yeah absolutely man okay so uh mario how do tell me a lot of uh your social media and then your website what are the what are the links for those okay so uh our website is at overland alpha thomas overland.com and uh, our social media uh instagram is uh, at overland and so is our facebook at overland and you guys are here in Prescott, Arizona. And do you guys have a you guys have a shop here? I mean, it's open to the public. Yes, we have a shop. Uh, it's open to the public. Uh, we're pretty busy. We appreciate people if they give us a call in advance so that we're certain to set aside some time for your visit because we want to give you quality time and not just time in passing. Um, we're located at uh, 697 6th Street in Building 4, and it's kind of a hidden build, uh, business complex here in Prescott. I love the fact that you guys are here, Matt from Max Tracks. Uh, He's in the complex, yeah. In the complex. Uh, we're here. Uh, Scott's down the road with Scott's Overland down Journal. down the road, yeah. I love it. This this place is uh, really important, I think, in the 
you know, the, the centrifuge of, of uh, Overlanding right down the street from Overland Expo. You guys are going to be at Overland Expo May 17th through the 19th. You'll have a booth there as well, right? Yes, we will. We'll be in the, in the center arena. We have, uh, I think we might even be vendor number one. We have never missed a single Overland Expo. Nice. The very first one was here in Prescott before it uh, moved away. Yeah, there yeah. was about, I don't know, I think four or 500 of us. We all knew each other. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Back then, it was the fringe. Yeah, that's awesome. It, and uh, March 14th, for everybody listening to this, March 14th here at AT Overland, it's going to be Casey Lights. We're going to convince uh, Summit Off-Road, which is down the street. It's an off-road shop. Um, uh, uh, AT Overland, obviously. Us, Phil Craft Survival will Max be here. Max Tracks. And Max Tracks will be here as well. We'll have some raffles, some giveaways. We'll have coffee. Yep. Um, well, it's going to be really cool. Yep. It'll be open house and, yep. uh, we're excited to have people come visit our little overlanding epicenter here in Prescott and, yep. uh, and get to meet the people who, uh, build stuff and yeah. meet other, meet other fringe people. I can't, yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. So if you're interested in survival, off-roading, overlanding, please come out, check out the shop and then check us out and then meet us. Uh, Mario, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you so much, man. It's already been an hour, over an hour. Oh, geez. Those are the easy ones when right, you know man. it's time's gone by super fast. Thank yeah. you so much. You betcha. You betcha.